Welcome to Pedagog, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. In this episode, John Gallagher talks about digital writing and rhetoric, usability and user design, technical writing, the afterlife of digital writing, and using digital technologies in research. John R. Gallagher is an associate professor at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. He studies interfaces, participatory writer-audience relationships, and technical communication. He has been published in Computers and Composition, Enculturation, Journal of Business and Technical Writing, Rhetoric Review, Transformations, Technical Communication Quarterly, and Written Communication. His monograph, Update Culture and the Afterlife of Digital Writing, is available from Utah State University Press. He is currently working on two projects, a book about digital case study research and a long-term project about machine learning communication. John, thanks so much for joining us. Your teaching interest includes several aspects of digital writing and rhetoric, as well as visual rhetoric. Can you give an example of an assignment that students have responded well to at the University of Illinois, especially one that, that might use or critique digital media and online participation or ethics? Yeah, sure. So I study digital writing and rhetoric. Uh, and I also, within those, I would say I study uh, interfaces uh, with a particular focus. Um, I stress how interfaces are created, designed um, for social media purposes. So I think theoretically about interfaces. So, you know, I draw on um, some people outside of the field like Brandon Hookway and Alexander Galloway um, to, to sort of think about interface. Um, and then, you know, I, I teach a lot about interface design. I also think sort of about circulation and specifically about circulation. I think about the way that, um, you know, distribution modules and distribution um, nodes sort of guide users to sort of act in certain ways. So I think about sort of online writing habits in particular, um, and I try to connect all of those things and, you know, in my book, which we'll talk about in a moment. But in terms of an assignment that I found really well is I always ask students to do some sort of interface redesign of a uh, recent social media platform that they really like. So, you know, back in 2006, 2007, uh, this, this assignment was, you know, redesign Facebook's interface, right? How you would want it to be changed and why, you know, what kinds of habits you're thinking about. Then it became Twitter for a while, you know, now it might be TikTok, but really it's not about the platform itself. It's about sort of thinking about how the interface coerces as well as encourages certain kinds of user behaviors. So I actually have a chapter on this in uh, Erica Sparby's um, and Jessica Raymond's collection, uh, Digital Digital Ethics. In that chapter, I sort of talk about how Twitter could be redesigned to make it a little bit more of a, a nice place. And, and I literally mean that like in a nice place. I don't mean civil, I mean, it's like a nicer place. Um, so, you know, one of the one of the suggestions in that chapter, I actually offer some nice visuals about how you could redefine, redesign Twitter's interface. And one of them would be adding, you know, like a cool down button, right? Of like, you can't, you can't just tweet, you know, every second, you know, that maybe you need like a, like a two minute cool down or a three minute cool down. Or alternatively, you know, you could design a captcha function, right? Where you have to sort of click it so like I'm not a I'm not a, a human or like maybe I'm not a monster or something like that. But then also even, you know, even sort of more broadly, you could redesign the way a tweet looks, right? A tweet comes out in a sort of a rectangular function, right? That's really more the probably the result of it needing to be on a mobile device. But you could design a tweet to be in the shape of a heart, you know, or you know, and just thinking about the way that these interfaces 
actually have a firm sense of habituation on the user. And some of the theory that I'm drawing on, if people ever wanted to go read about it, come from B.J. Fogg's work. Um, so B.J. Fogg is a Stanford professor who in 2002 coined the term captology, which is sort of per how computers persuade people. B I note B.J. Fogg, not just because I know who he is, but actually because his students went on to these large corporations um, called like at that time, weird little thing called Facebook and another weird little company called Twitter. Right. And so it's really funny because sort of all of these sort of originators out of uh, BJ Fogg's lab went to these companies and sort of they used that theory. So this is actually a firm example where like academia had a huge impact on social media because they ingrained all of these addictive habits and addictive sort of user design functions and features into social media and they've just gotten sort of recreated and sort of re-ensconced back in like sort of every single um, social media platform throwing out bj fogg's name <laughs> isn't just always oh, a theorist right no like his students sort of for better or for worse had a great big impact on sort of how we think about interface design and how all of these social media companies basically got us addicted to it. John, you're talking about interface design and how the user interacts with these interfaces and how interfaces can even recreate patterns of behavior and participation. I'm curious as to how you define user design in terms like usability in your classes. And I'm also wondering how your definition intersects with other scholarly work via disability studies and universal design for learning. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I think any sort of unit about usability and user design needs to critique those terms and, and not critique them in like a bad way, but also like pull them apart for what they mean. Right. So um, one of the things that I actually do is I take the, the word user design and split it up and say, okay, like we have user, what does a user mean? Um, and I'm actually writing about this in my next project about case study. We're like, what do, what exactly does a user mean, right? So, you know, a user, I think sometimes we say users and we mean people, you know, but, um, you know, there's only sort of two types of people who refer to their clients as users, right? Drug dealers and website designers. Um, uh, that's, I think that's Tufty's joke. But sort of like, you know, what does a user mean? Like, so a user sort of is like, intrinsically connected to an interface a user is intrinsically connected to a database it's intrinsically connected to some sort of infrastructure so thinking about sort of what that what that term does when you sort of situate a person as a user right you know pulling that term apart then thinking about the term design right you know like i think design is probably sort of one of the most overdetermined terms of the last 10 years because you know, we could talk about design sort of in an, in an architectural sense. We could talk about design in terms of infrastructure. We could talk about design in terms of aesthetics. So, you know, getting students to sort of pull those apart. Um, and there's all sorts of really good readings about user design, both in the field, um, you know, as well as sort of like in uh, HCI research, um, human computer interaction, as well as sort of, you know, all sorts of CS research and things like that. Um, Carrie Kalios, um, who's a professor here in CS, does really good work, and I would recommend anybody sort of who's interested in sort of user design stuff. She does really fascinating work that I think a lot of compositionists would would love to get their hands hands on. Um, she actually did a study about users and sort of revealing how she interviewed a bunch of users on certain social media platforms and showed them how their inputs were ignored by algorithms. Um, so you know she did this study of 
people who were leaving online reviews and you know through the user design their their reviews just got bumped to the bottom or even you know not even displayed to other people um sort of asked asked about their affective reactions to that so some really interesting stuff with user design going on across various fields and then i would say so you know one of the things that the the way i really think that people seem to account for you know you said disability studies in your question um and user universal design is I like to sort of think about, you know, thinking about usability in sort of an inverse, you know, Gaussian distribution. So um, rather than sort of thinking about who were the, what's like the center of the Gaussian distribution, right? The big bump in the middle of a distribution, thinking about sort of the tail users, right? We would call these edge users and sort of the, 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 the language of user design, right? The people at the tails, right? How are you attending to them? Because you would likely attend to the Gaussian distribution in the middle if you attended to the edge users, right? So um, historically, right, people haven't really attended to the edge users because they've traditionally been marginalized users, marginalized people. But you, if you attend to sort of what their design needs are for, um, you would sort of intrinsically take care of the, the majority population. And so that's sort of the, one of the ways that I sort of think about disability studies and universal design. In your recent book, Update Culture in the Afterlife of Digital Writing, you include a chapter on learning and pedagogy in update culture. Can you give an overview of the book and a definition of update culture, what that means and how you see this working within composition studies and classes like technical writing? The So the whole premise of update culture, the book, update culture in the afterlife of digital writing, we basically think about there's a bunch of stuff that writers do after they publish, quote unquote. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff they do. And that is, and that should be, in my view, be considered writing or part of the writing process, right? What it means to be a writer is, for example, if you were publishing books, to go on a book tour, right? Um, to go sort of do some of sort of the marketing and the advertising um, involved in selling those books. And of course, we've always had this, right? I mean, a lot of Equiano, right? The sort of one of the first slave narratives that was published, right? He went on a book tour in England. Um, so like, you know, it's not necessarily a brand new idea, but as I argue in the book, right, the scale of the afterlife of writing has dramatically increased with social media. So for example, right, um, writers now are marketers, producers, advertisers, right? They're their own editorial assistant, right? They have to consider all of the various kinds of distribution mechanisms and think about those things in a much sort of more intense way than without social media. Um, and one of the sort of the examples that I've been using when I talk to people about this is as an academic, right? When you publish a book, you have to write a book proposal. And oftentimes in that book proposal, they, they now ask you, how many Twitter followers do you have? How many, you know, what kind of digital presence do you have? And how will that help sell the book, right? And these are academic presses that I'm talking about. So this isn't even like, you know, like the, the, the highest form of capitalistic efficiency, right? Where, you know, sometimes, you know, you have to have like, a following before they would even give you a book contract, for instance, from like Simon and Schuster. Um, and so the book basically makes that argument. Um, and I would actually just change the book title to The Afterlife of Digital Writing. Um, so I'm not sure, you know, update culture is sort of as I define it in the book, the expectation that websites now change when you go back to them, right? So if you go back to Twitter, right, the layout might be the same, but like all the content's gonna be new, right? And so we have this expectation that we can revisit 
our writing and it will be different. We can revisit sort of the websites. We can revisit digital writing and digital rhetoric and sort of things change, right? So there's an expectation to updates. There's an expectation to change. You know, that's sort of the the sort of the holistic argument in the book is that we have to consider these afterlife processes to be part of writing. And that would naturally impact our teaching, right? Um, so one of the ways that sort of I think about this is asking students to think about, oh, you know, instead of instead of just writing this paper, like how would you advertise this paper? What what media form does this paper need to need to take so that others might be able to read it more? Um, you can also do the classical remediation thing where you ask a student to take a traditional paper and turn it into a podcast or a YouTube video or something like that. I think one way of sort of really sort of building in the afterlife is to give students credit for doing that work and that labor. Um, and sort of I actually draw on a couple of examples in the book where I've done this where, you know, I, I've, taught a, I've taught a course on self-publishing and I will give students credit for, you know, spending the time trying to get others to read their posts, their blog posts or their content. Um, so one very concrete example that I can give is, you know, dropping links to your blog in the comment section of other blogs or in the comment section of YouTube videos that people might be like, hey, I had something similar that you did here. Would you come read my blog, right? And believe it or not, I actually did this for a while in like 2016 and 2017. Embarrassingly, I was I was writing a, a basketball blog and I would just drop the links. And I got a surprising number of readers because I was dropping the the links in in the comment section of ESPN back when it had a comment section. And I was getting like a couple thousand uh, hits a day you know, about stuff where I was like, Tim, Tim Duncan is the greatest basketball player ever. And like making like outrageous claims about it. But these, these strategies work and thinking about those kinds of strategies and allowing students to sort of use that as, as a form of writing and giving them credit and saying, you know, every time, you know, drop a link into 20 different comment sections, right? 20 different times you do that. That's the equivalent of, of a 300 word blog post. So your research, as we've discussed, is connected to digital technologies, interface design, usability, digital writing. I was hoping you could talk about the affordances of using digital methods and methodologies in research and how these methods have made you a better researcher and teacher. And then maybe you could also share some of the challenges that come along with this kind of research. Sure, sure. I think there's a there's a two-part answer here. One is that Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes people sort of think of me as like a quant guy because I've done some quantitative research. And I don't think of myself as a quantitative researcher. I, I also don't think of myself as a qualitative researcher. I actually like to think of those things as a spectrum, very deeply related to one another. And, you know, sometimes they're, you know, you can see how you could actually, if you interviewed 100 people and you could like run statistics on that, right? But that's a qualitative process. Um, but the reason why I sort of don't necessarily identify as a qualitative or quantitative researcher is because I, my approach is, you know, I sort of study and theorize about audience. And if I'm going to do that, I realized that I had to do the qualitative work, interviews, questionnaires, field work, ethnographic approaches, observations, right? Very, very fundamental groundwork, uh, qualitative research. But I also needed to integrate, you know, if I'm going to study audience, like from a larger perspective, a group of audience, right? I might need to do surveys, right? Which aren't necessarily questionnaires, surveys with statistical approaches, statistical analyses of focus groups of, you know, proper, proper, properly sampling my data, right? So 
my own theoretical approach, that of sort of audience, um, sort of audience research, which is both a perspective about audiences as well as how writers perceive audiences, necessitates both of those those paradigms. Now to like fully answer the question is I try to like, I like to think of those things as sort of inextricably connected to one another. So for example, I use web scraping in my research, right? Um, web scraping, you know, you can do it with Python, you can do it with R. Also um, a little plug here for a friend of mine, Aaron Beveridge, who's at Un University of Greensboro, has a program called MassMine, massmine.org, it's NEH, it's from an NEH grant, and allows people to web scrape without coding knowledge, right? You have to know how to use command line prompts, um, but you don't have to know any code, right? So it does it all for you. And this allows people to sort of scale up their research. So, you know, rather than, you know, if you need to scrape, if you needed to pull off information off of, you know, 150 Wikipedia pages, you could do it in five minutes rather than sort of copy and paste them over the course of several hours, right? So I think sort of, you know, being able to sort of use these digital technologies to answer your research questions is really good. And sort of, I've turned to web scraping in my research. And, you know, some people think of web scraping as a quantitative approach, but it's actually, you pull a bunch of stuff off of a website, then you can analyze it qualitatively. Um, so, you know, web scraping is one of those digital technologies that I use in my research that I think other people might be interested in. Um, I also think, you know, distant reading, as some people might call it in our field. Um, I like to just think of sort of like, running and running large scale analyses. Um, you know, you could do some topic modeling, which is sort of like looking at latent patterns. You could also sort of turn to sort of corpus linguistics for interesting terms. You know, Conrad and Biber have a great book about corpus linguistics that I would recommend to everybody. So those are some of like the advantages, right? Of sort of, you know, when you turn to some of these digital technologies, you can see the intersection between qualitative and quantitative research. You can scale and the second point would be to scale up your research um, so that you can get more data and that you can take a more macro approach. Um, then you can sort of drill down to do sort of some of the micro work that all of us want to do. In terms of the challenges, right, of the startup cost of all of this is really the big one, right? This takes time. This takes time to learn. I did some web scraping for my dissertation, right? That took a month, right? It took a whole month out of my summer in July of 2013. I spent a lot of time sort of figuring it out. That was back when web scraping was sort of the wild west before all the disinformation came out. So, you know, the, the, the number one challenge is the startup time. But that startup time gets less and less the more you learn. Um, it also gives people um, skills that are more sellable if you can't get a tenure track job or a more stable academic job. Uh, there are some other challenges, too, that have come up, right, of I know enough statistics to get myself in trouble. <laughs> in other words, right, like I don't know advanced statistics, right? I can do descriptive and sort of basic inferential statistics, but I always, whenever I do statistics in my work, I try to have people that I know um, at the university or even people, members of my family, because I have that, I have that privilege and advantage of making sure that the statistics make sense. Um, so when you do some of the more scalable, large scale work, making sure that you know what you don't know and sort of being aware of your own gaps because you sort of, when you get into some of the stuff, it's very, it's very fun and it's very innovative and you immediately want to sort of use it and do it. And you're like, oh, maybe there are some disadvantages here. So sort of being aware of your own blind spots would be sort of the second challenge. Those challenges, are part of part of the fun about sort of the flexibility of what we do in academia, right? I think academia is largely left to sort of, you know, we have a lot of freedom in academia to sort of pursue our our own research and our projects. 
And I think that's one of the cool things about it. And that's why I, I always on Twitter, I want people to sort of share those stories of like, hey, I'm doing this really cool, innovative research and I want to read about it and learn about it. Thanks, John. And thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers. Until next time.